Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Stephen. If you have a Bible, I could invite you to turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3. It's page 306 in the Red Pew Bibles. And uh, if you could see a copy of God's Word as we go through it, it would, it would be really helpful. I'm going to end this evening with five challenges. Uh, David, the main character in this story that we've been tracing, uh, he faced all of these challenges. Some of them he dealt with brilliantly. Others, not so well. And these are five challenges that, that we all face. And here they are. The challenge of waiting. The challenge of not conforming. The challenge of consequences or choices and consequences. You know, facing them and dealing with them. The challenge of forgiveness and peacemaking. And also the challenge of dealing with difficult people. Second Samuel uh, 2 and 3 has often been described as an overlooked portion of God's word uh, in that the material in it is unfamiliar to many people. Uh, there is a sense in which David in these two chapters is effectively marking time. He's in, and we, we thought about this two weeks ago, he's in the waiting room, so to speak. He's uh, waiting to become the king of, over all Israel. He, he's waiting for the promise and the promises of God to be fulfilled in his life, to kind of become a reality. Because years and years earlier, Samuel, under God's guidance, had selected and anointed David to be the next king. He was going to be the one who would succeed Saul. But there's been this massive time lag between then and now. And the intervening years, and it's approximately about 12, but the intervening years have been really difficult for David. Many times during those 12 years, whenever the promise and the promises of God must have seemed like a pipe dream, just wishful thinking, like they were never going to come true. And two weeks ago, as we reflected a little on the challenge of, of waiting and needing to wait on the Lord, needing to wait for his word and his promises to be fulfilled in our lives, the two kind of things that we said regarding the challenge of waiting is this, that one, waiting is never easy. It can be frustrating, it can be annoying, it can be painful. Waiting can even shake your faith. But secondly, waiting creates opportunity. During a time of waiting, we have this opportunity to grow and to learn and to discover and to stretch. Well, this evening as we, we pick up the story again in chapter 3, David is still in the waiting room. As we discovered in chapter 2, he's been made king in Judah. So at this stage, he's king in the south only not in the north. One of Saul's surviving sons, a 40-year-old called Ishbosheth, he has been installed as a kind of puppet king in his dad's place. Now, humanly speaking, many people would have thought, well, look, at the point of Saul's death, surely if David has been anointed to succeed Saul, at the point of Saul's death, would it not have made sense for David to just automatically and quickly take the throne? But as it turns out, and we discover this in these chapters, it turns out 
there's more time to wait. In fact, another seven and a half years of being in this waiting room. But not only is there more time to wait, there are more twists and turns to navigate, more obstacles and hurdles to negotiate as we're about to discover. And as is so often the case in life, including life with God, the one thing you can kind of say in response to what's going on here and what's happening is that things rarely turn out as you expect. Yes, Saul's dead, so so why why does David not just become king now? But rarely do things with God turn out as you expect. Do they run smoothly? Or do they go the way you'd hoped? And so if you're here tonight again, and it feels like you've been waiting for ages, and you're still waiting on God, you're still waiting for the promise of God or the promises of God to materialize in your life, then I hope you will take heart in recognizing, as we said a couple of weeks ago, that waiting is part and parcel of the Christian life. In fact, delay is usual. Delay is usual. So let's continue to read David's story. Now, although this particular chapter may be unfamiliar, it's actually a chapter that's got everything in it. It has every ingredient for a great blockbuster movie or an international bestseller. So there is civil war, There is intrigue, there is sex, there is deceit, there is betrayal, there is tragedy, there is jealousy, there is murder, there's even a song. Okay, it's got everything in it that you'd need. It's all in here. The one thing, just as we start reading this, is there are two other people you need to know something about who feature quite heavily and play a key role in this story. And those two people are Joab, who is David's right-hand man. He's his number one general. And then there is a guy called Abner, who was Saul's right-hand man, his general. And he is the guy who actually has installed Ishbosheth as this kind of puppet king in the north. So Joab and Abner are two key people. Look at verse 1. It says there, The war between the house of Saul and the house of Israel lasted a long time. Okay, so there's... There's your confirmation, in a sense, right up front, that there is more waiting. And not only more waiting, but during this wait, there's massive challenges to handle and deal with war. But look at what it says at the end of verse 1. During this time, David grows stronger and stronger. There is an insight into the value of waiting. It actually creates this opportunity for David to grow. And then verses 2 to 5, I'm not going to read them, but have a look down. In verses 2 to 5, you have this bit of a genealogy. And here you read that David has six different sons who are born to six different wives during his time in Hebron. Now, at one level, you, you could say, and some Bible commentators do, that, that this little fact, and it kind of seems strange for the narrator to insert it here, but this little fact proves and demonstrates that David is growing in power and greatness. In other words, by telling us that he's having these six sons with these six different wives, kind of proves David is the man. But on another level, you could also argue that this genealogy indicates a bit of a problem. So according to Charles Swindle, 
He says the genealogy tells us something about the dark side of David's character. Why? You see, although polygamy was a common custom in the Middle East, and although kings in this particular context did consolidate their power and form alliances by marrying a number of different wives, God, via Moses, had explicitly made it clear that Israel's king was never to multiply wives. Never. Let me read from Deuteronomy 17. Neither shall he, that is Israel's king, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now one of the reasons for doing this series in the life of David is because of David's lasting reputation. This is, this is why we've set out on this journey to do this series. And David's lasting reputation was a man after God's own heart. And so all along we've been trying to ask ourselves, well, well what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a man after, or be a person after God's own heart? What does it look like? So that we can learn, so that we can reflect that. But one of the important lessons to acknowledge as we explore this issue together is what this doesn't mean is that David was perfect. What this doesn't mean is that David never made mistakes, that he never got it wrong. David made lots of poor choices, lots of bad decisions. We've already seen that. And there's lots more to come, especially whenever we kind of pick up season two of this series at the start of 2015, where we chart David's life after he does finally become king of all Israel. But despite his imperfection and his tendency to slip up and mess up, he is still referred to in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And therefore, one of the things that this should, I hope, communicate to us, especially when we're all too aware of our own weaknesses and feelings, is that we're actually more than our weaknesses and feelings. Those things don't define us. They didn't define David. He made mistakes. He was weak. He did fail. But how he's remembered is as a man after God's own heart. And so if you're here tonight and you're all too aware of your own weakness and feelings, those things don't have to define you. We can still be people who have a heart after God and have a heart like God's. David, to quote Swindle, might have had a dark side, but he was also a man, clearly, of character and integrity, and that is his lasting reputation. A couple of other comments just before we move on from this genealogy. One, just because something is common practice or it's an accepted custom in a particular culture doesn't mean it's okay for Christians. As Paul would state quite strongly in Romans 12, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture, as it says in another version, that you fit into it without even thinking. Yes, polygamy might have been the norm in this culture, and particularly for kings, but it didn't mean that David had to buy into it. David didn't have to go with the flow 
And there are many, many things and practices and perspectives and lifestyles and ways of thinking that are increasingly accepted and part and parcel of our culture. But we have got to be really, really careful as Christians that we don't conform, that we don't copy, that we don't embrace without referring to God, without referring to God's word, without referring to his alternative kingdom culture. So just because something is the accepted norm and culture doesn't mean that we just say, yeah, fine, let's reflect that. Clearly, that's how David chose to live. Secondly, and, and I realize this is, a, this is just another comment on this genealogy, and, but it's something we, we keep returning to in a sense we keep banging on about, but with choices come consequences. Now, the reason I say that here is there are some of David's sons who are mentioned here that we never hear of again. There's three of them, three in this list, only mentioned here, never hear about them again. But others do feature heavily in David's story, and they do not feature positively. In fact, some of David's sons undermine his authority and threaten his future. And you see, David's polygamy would come back to haunt him later in life. He chose to multiply wives. David then had to live with the consequences of that. God patently said, listen, don't do it. Why? Lest your heart is compromised. And so it seems that although God had said it, David didn't quite get it. And as a result, as I say, he had to live with the consequences of that. And that kind of comes out further on down in the story. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, Solomon... David's son did exactly the same, although he took the number of wives and concubines to a whole other level. (laughs) But that choice came back to, to bite him as well. So choices and consequences, they are a reality of life. So the one thing we've got to learn is this, we've got to be so careful about the choices we make. So careful especially the big choices. Back to the story. Verses 6 to 11, let me read these. During the war, this is this war that lasted a long time, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now, Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said, and he answered, am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day, I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet, now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. So in this little section of the story, what you find is Abner who'd been Saul's right-hand man, 
who had installed Ishbosheth as his puppet king in the north, Abner is accused by Ishbosheth of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines. See, as far as Ishbosheth was concerned, this was Abner trying to stake a claim to the throne. That's what you did when you wanted to kind of take authority. Slept with one of the concubines of the king. Abner naturally is furious at this allegation. Whether he did it or not is unclear, which is really interesting. We don't actually know. He seems to plead his innocence, but we're not sure. But whether he did it or not is unclear. But as a result of the allegation, he flips. And what does he do? He says, do you know something? I am now going to do everything within my power to take this kingdom in the north and hand it over to David. And there is this fascinating line in there. Did you notice it? To help David get what the Lord had promised him. In other words, the promise to David that one day he would be king of all Israel was clearly no secret. It wasn't only known to a select few. It must have been news out there that David was going to become king someday. And so what Abner does is he flips. He literally changes size and he says, right, because you've accused me of doing this, I'm going to hand what is your kingdom, although you're just a puppet king, I'm going to hand your kingdom over to David. And so Abner sends messengers to David and says, David, have a look at verse 12. David, if we can strike some kind of deal, I'll bring all Israel over to you. David, verse 13, jumps at the offer. But he adds a condition. And if you look, it's a kind of a weird condition. Try to scan down from verse 13 for a moment. Here's the condition. As if David didn't have enough wives, okay? So he has these at least six that we know about. Well, David, now here's the condition. I want another one. What he wants is he wants his ex-wife back again. Now, for those who have been following this series, and I'm not sure how many of you have, but for those who have been following this series, you might remember Mikael. Mikael was Saul's daughter. She was in love with David at one stage years ago, years ago. And Saul had given her to David to be his wife after David had killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. Michal is also the one you'll remember who helped David escape from Saul by luring him out through a bedroom window. And then whenever Saul's hit squad came to kill David, Michal put a dummy in the bed and pretended that David was sick. Somebody, does anybody remember that part of the story? Yeah, well, lots of you are known. Good. I have, honestly, it's all in here. I'm not making this stuff up. I know it sounds like it, but honestly, it's all in here. First Samuel 19, the hit squad come to the door. David's been let out the window. Uh, Mikael shows the hit men in, and they see what they think is David lying in the bed, and it's just a dummy. And so David does escape. But as a result of this, David never sees Mikael again, his wife. Now, here in 2 Samuel 3, for some reason, and try to think about this, why, why? For some reason at this point in time, and this could be like 10, 11 years after he's lost that wife, he says, tell you what, Abner, I want Mikael back. 
But what we have here at this point in the story is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the whole of the Bible. You see, it turns out that Michal, after David had ran away, Michal had remarried. She remarried a man called Paltiel. Could have been married to him for 10 years plus. We're, we're not entirely sure. And so what happens is Ishbosheth, the puppet king, orders Michal to be taken from her husband and to return to David. There's no record in the text of how Michal reacts. The king, even though he's a puppet king, the king has ordered this, therefore she must do it. But although we have no record of how Michal reacts, there is a record of how her husband reacts. Look at verse 16. It says here, and when I was reading this, I do find this heartbreaking. It says here that Paltiel followed his wife all the way to Burham, crying his eyes out. And then... When he arrives there, Abner says, off you go back home again. And I was trying to think, what what do I say in response to that? And I don't know. I don't know. But you know what it does remind me? What this tells me is, these stories involve real people with real feelings. And sometimes life seems desperately unfair as a bigger story plays out. Did David need to remarry Saul's daughter in order to verify his claim to the throne? That's what some people think. That's why David sent for her. So did David need to remarry Michal in order to verify his rightful claim to the throne? Well, maybe he did. Maybe that was a crucial component in the purposes of God. But you know something? Walking back home is a husband whose heart has been ripped out and whose life has just imploded. And I find that heartbreaking. (laughs) Nothing else to say. (laughs) Back to the story. Abner meets, it says then, various people key people in the area. And he kind of canvasses their support for David. Remember, he's agreed to hand all Israel over. And so he canvasses people's support. And then it says, Abner comes in person to meet David. Look at verse 20. Let's read from verse 20. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord the king so that they may make a compact with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. This is an extraordinary scene. Remember, Abner was Saul's right-hand man who had spent years trying to kill David. So Abner was a sworn enemy of David's. And yet David's capacity to forgive and throw a feast for him and his men is so impressive. 
We read that there has been, verse 1, this long, this bloody civil war between David's house and Saul's, but now here there is an opportunity to unite and to heal, and David takes it and he grabs this opportunity with both hands. He reaches out to Abner, who was his sworn enemy. There appears to be, have to, to be a real and genuine hope here for a brighter future. Clearly for David, there was risks involved in accepting Abner and throwing this face for him. But David models something in these moments that reflects the later of teaching of Jesus that we have been looking at in the World Changer series. To love and bless your enemies. To live peaceably with all men and overcome evil with good. Here, in this moment, I honestly believe we have a genuine example of a man after God's own heart. David welcomed Abner. Welcomed him, threw a feast for him. And so just now you think, right, the immediate future looks so much better. Then comes the next incident that wrecks everything. <laughs> Look at verse 22. Joab, he comes back onto the scene. He's David's right-hand man. He's been out on a raid. He's returned with a whole lot of plunder. And he gets wind that Abner has been to see David. But not only does he hear that Abner has been to see David, but he obviously hears that David welcomed Abner with open arms, that he forgave him, that he threw a feast for him. And in fact, it says that David sent Abner away in peace, and Joab discovers that. And so Joab challenges David. Look at verse 24. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done, Lord? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. You know Abner's son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you're doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sarah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into a gateway as though to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother Ashiel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. See, Joab clearly had a totally different mindset to his master. There's no forgiveness with Joab. As Keller says, he had none of David's forgiving spirit. He knew nothing of pardon or peace. He was furious. He was a ferocious man bent on blood. Or as Pete Wilcox says, Joab the hawk is furious with David's dove-like stance. You see, for Joab, this was personal. If you were here two weeks ago, you will know that Abner had murdered Joab's brother. And so, in an act of ultimate revenge, Joab stabs Abner in the stomach and kills him. And in doing that, he possibly wrecks everything. David knew nothing about this, it says. Here is Abner, or Joab, derailing David's destiny. Now, for Joab, this may have been personal, but sometimes, and, and what I'm about to say, I do not say lightly particularly in Northern Ireland. I really don't say this lately. But for Joab, this may have been personal, but sometimes 
you've somehow got to grasp the bigger picture. You've got to lay aside personal feelings and agendas for the greater good. Or to pick up Romans 12 again, you've kind of got to leave vengeance in its proper place. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone, says God's word. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, I'm just reading on here. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. For Joab, we then read that there were severe consequences to this choice. This is back to this issue. Joab decided, he chose, do you know something? I'm going to kill this guy. And he did that. And now we read that for Joab, there were severe consequences. David didn't kill him, which some people are surprised at. But what you do read is that Joab or David heaped curses on Joab. Let me read them. It's in the text. It's horrible, this. May the family of Joab, says David, be cursed in every generation with someone who has open sores or leprosy or who walks on crutches or dies by the sword or begs for food. Another version, may Joab's family never be without someone who is a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. It's truly awful. But all I can say to this is, it it is recorded here for us as a reminder of the need to carefully consider the choices we make. Joab chose to kill Abner, and that's what the consequences were for him and his family. Nearly done. David, it says, then leads the community in mass mourning. And here's where the song comes in, because David writes a lament for Abner, which again, when you take it that Abner was his sworn enemy, it's impressive that David would actually lead the nation in a lament for Abner's death and would write a song about him. But then everyone realizes, according to verse 37, that David had nothing to do with Abner's murder. It was his right-hand man that had killed him, not David. So David's hands are clean. His conscience is clear. But in a final and telling comment, David recognizes, just at the very end of this chapter, David recognizes that Joab and one other person are going to be a real problem to him. And so in the last verse, it kind of, you read there, that, that David effectively hands Joab, and as this other guy, over to God. And for those of you who know this story, you will know that Joab turns out to be someone who brings a ton of grief on David. And so you kind of wonder to yourself, because David had done this before, you kind of wonder to yourself, why didn't David, once he discovered what Joab had did, why didn't David just kill him? Why didn't God allow David to just take him out? And maybe that just shows that sometimes God allows hard, difficult awkward and unforgiving people to remain in our lives because they help develop us and strengthen our character and so another chapter ends in the story David still isn't king 
More waiting required. During this wait, there's been all these hurdles and challenges to face and clear. And if you come back next week, uh, there is actually, I kind of almost feel as if I need to put out a certificate on next week because the next chapter, there is so much more mess and bloodshed that it's, it, it is horrible next week. Uh, no, it, well, it probably will be hard, yeah. But so much more needs to take place before the promises of God become a reality. And so Second Samuel chapter 3 may be unfamiliar, but for me, it does raise a bunch of challenges, five of them, and here they are. The challenge of waiting, the challenge of not conforming, the challenge of choices and consequences, the challenge of forgiveness and peacemaking, and the challenge of dealing with difficult people. So maybe there's more in a chapter like that than we first realize. Let's pray together. Father, again, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the rawness of it at times. We thank you for the intrigue there is in it. We thank you for uh, just the, the humanity of it, God. And yet it poses some real huge questions for us as we read it back again. But thank you, God, for how you're working out your purposes in David's life and in the life of those around David. You've promised that he will be king. But in the time of waiting, so many other things need to take place in order that David's in a kind of right place to be king. So thank you for the challenges he faced. Thank you for those he dealt with well. And for those he struggled with, God, we recognize that for each one of us here tonight, many of these challenges we also face. The challenge to wait on your promises to be fulfilled in our lives. The challenge of kind of buying in and being squeezed into the mold of the world in which we live in. Every day we face choices. Help us to recognize that with choices come consequences. And God, the challenge to forgive is massive. The challenge to be peacemakers is huge. And God, so often there are people in our lives who are difficult. And sometimes we wonder why we kind of have to put up with them. And so God, thank you for just the challenges that do come across our path. And I pray as we seek to be people whose hearts are after yours, that we would rise to the challenges. In Jesus' name, amen.